You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, check out circleofhope.net. The title of my talk is Three Stories, Dr. King, Paul and Axe, and Rachel Sensenick. For the next month or so, I would like to tell you some stories, and I want to focus on the power of story to transform us because it's strong. Sometimes rhetoric or argument or explanation is what's needed, and some of my stories may require more explanation than I have time to give. But that's the beauty of story. It opens something up that isn't finished yet and allows us to inhabit it with our own minds, hearts, and imaginations. We bring our own stories to a story in a different way than if I were just telling you what I thought or trying to make uh, a convincing argument about what was going on. In telling and listening to these stories, my main goal is to expand our hour, like the sign up there, to live into a particular moment, real or imagined, and to inherit the courage, faith, and other virtues of the saint whose story I want to share with you. The faith God has given them is our faith, too. The hope they held on to is our hope, too. The love Jesus has led them in is our love, too. Circle of Hope keeps a blog called Celebrating Our Trans-Historical Body, circleofhope.net slash transhistorical, on which we remember the saints, those holy people, of the church throughout history who have a story to share with us. It's not just the people who get an ST before their name uh, in history. It's other people that we we remember and and keep adding to. Each week I'm going to pull a story from that blog, a story from someone in the front. So a story about someone from that blog, a story uh, from someone in the Bible, and a story from someone in our church and they're all loosely connected along a common theme. All right, three stories. This week our theme is dreams. It's Martin Luther King Day weekend, so we'll start with him. We often celebrate our saints on the day that they die on on our blog. Um, Often people's saints days are their death days, the day that they entered into the cloud of witnesses. but I, since everyone's talking about it, I wanted to do it today on the day, on the weekend that we celebrate his birthday. His birthday is April, I mean, January 15th. His death day, as we just sang in the U2 song, is April 4th. I think it's important to, to remember those things. I have April 4th on my calendar. That's how important Dr. King is to me personally. Uh, you don't have to do that, but I'm hoping you can get into his story and also the story from Paul the Apostle in Acts 16. And then the third story is a story about a dream that Rachel Sensenick had. Rachel Sensenick is one of our pastors. Before I go any further, let me pray again. God, open our ears to this story, these three stories. Open our minds and hearts. Convict us that these stories are indeed ours. No matter the distance between us and them, you bring us together to share the faith, hope, and love. You have given us. Help us to share it right now. In Jesus' name, amen.
So I put up those pictures for this story, those three black and whites. So this story is adapted from a book by Gary Young. It's called The Speech, the story behind Martin Luther King's dream. The night before the March on Washington on 28 August 1963, Martin Luther King asked his aides for advice about the next day's speech. Don't use the lines about, I have a dream, his, advi his advisor Wyatt Walker told him. It's trite. It's cliche. You've used it too many times already. King had indeed employed the refrain several times before. It had featured in an address just a week earlier at a fundraiser in Chicago, and a few months before that at a huge rally in Detroit. As with most of his speeches, both had been well-received, but neither had been regarded as momentous. This speech had to be different. While King was by now a national political figure, relatively few outside the black church and the civil rights movement had heard him give a full address. With, a, with all three television networks offering live coverage of the March for Jobs and Freedom, this would be his rhetorical introduction to the nation. After a wide range of conflicting suggestions from his staff, King left the lobby at the Willard Hotel in D.C. to put the final touches to his speech. He had hoped would be received, in his words, like the Gettysburg Address. I am now going upstairs to my room to counsel with my lord, he told them. I will see you all tomorrow. A few floors below, King's suite, Walker made himself available. King would call down and tell him what he wanted to say. Walker would write something he hoped worked, then head up the stairs to present it to, the, to King. When it came to my speech drafts, wrote Clarence Jones, who had already penned the first draft, King often acted like an interior designer. I would deliver four strong walls, and he would use his God-given abilities to furnish the place so that it felt like home. <laughs> King finished the outline at about midnight and then wrote a draft in longhand. One of his aides who went to King's suite that night saw words crossed out three or four times. He thought it looked as though King were writing poetry. King went to sleep at about 4 a.m., giving the text to his aides to print and distribute. The I Have a Dream section was not in it. A few hours after, King went to sleep. The march's organizer, Bayard Rustin, wandered on to the Washington Mall where the demonstration would take place later that day with some of his assistants to find security personnel and journalists outnumbering demonstrators. Political marches in Washington are now commonplace, but in 1963, attempting to stage a march of this size in that place was unprecedented. The movement had high hopes for a large turnout and originally set a goal of 100,000. From the reservations on coaches and trains alone, they guessed they should be at least close to that figure. But when the morning came, that expectation did little to calm their nerves. Reporters badgered Rustin about the ramifications for both the event and the movement if the crowd turned out to be smaller than anticipated. Rustin, forever theatrical, took a round pocket watch from his trousers and some paper from his jacket. Examining first the paper and then the watch, he turned to the reporters and said, everything is right on schedule. The piece of paper was blank. The first official freedom train arrived at Washington Union Station from Pittsburgh at 8.02 a.m. Records uh, 
The first official freedom train arrived at Washington Union Station, Pittsburgh at 8 records Charles Euchner. I'm sorry, that was a, that's a mistake. It, 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 I'll start that paragraph again. The first official freedom train arrived at Washington Union Station from Pittsburgh at 8.02 a.m. Within a couple of hours, thousands were pouring through the station every five minutes, while almost two buses a minute rolled into D.C. from across the country. About 250,000 people showed up that day. It was a hectic morning for King, paying a courtesy visit with other march leaders to politicians of the Capitol, but he still found time to fiddle with the speech. When he eventually walked up to the podium, the typed final version was once more full of crossing out and scribbles. Rustin, the organizer, had limited the speakers to just five minutes each and threatened to come on with a crook and haul them from the podium when their time was up. But they all overran. And given the heat, 87 degrees at noon, and humidity, the crowd's mood began to wane. Weary from a night's travel, many were anxious to make good time on the journey back and had already left. King was 16th on the official program that included the national anthem, the invocation, a prayer, a tribute to women, two sets of songs, and nine other speakers. Only the benediction and the pledge came after. Portions of the crowd had moved off to seek respite from the heat under the trees on the mall, while others dipped their feet in the reflecting pool. Those most eager for a view of the podium braved the sun under the shade of their umbrellas. There was an air of subtle depression, of wistful apathy, which existed in many, wrote Norman Mailer. One felt a little of the muted disappointment which attacked a crowd in the seventh inning of a very important baseball game when the score had gone 11-3. The home team was ahead, but the tension is broken. One, one's concern is no longer noble. But if they were exhausted, they were no less excited. <coughs> Gospel singer Mahalia Jackson had lifted spirits with I've been buked and I've been scorned. Joachim Prince, president of the American Jewish Congress, followed her, recalling his time as a rabbi in Berlin under Hitler. Quote, a great people who had created a great civilization had become a nation of silent onlookers. They remained silent in the face of hate, in the face of brutality, and in the face of mass murder, he said, America must not become a nation of onlookers. America must not remain silent. King was next. The area around the mic was crowded with speakers, dignitaries, and their entourages. Wearing a black suit, black tie, and white shirt, King edged through the melee towards the podium. King started slowly and stuck close to his prepared text. I thought it was a good speech, recalled John Lewis, the leader of the student wing of the movement, who had addressed the march earlier that day. But it was not nearly as powerful as many I had heard him make. As he moved towards his final words, it seemed that he too could sense that he was falling short. He hadn't locked it in to that power he so often found. King was winding up with what would have been a well-received, but by his standards, fairly unremarkable, Oration. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana, he said, 
Then behind him, Mahalia Jackson cried out, Tell him about the dream, Martin! Jackson had a particularly intimate emotional relationship with King, who, when he felt down, would call her for some gospel music therapy. She was his favorite gospel singer, and he would ask her to sing the old rugged cross or Jesus met the woman at the well down the phone line. Jones explained, Jackson had seen him deliver the dream refrain, refrain in Detroit in June, and clearly it had moved her. Go back to the slums and ghettos of the northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed, King said. Jackson, Jackson shouted again, Tell him about the dream. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. Then King grabbed the podium and set his prepared text to the left. When he was reading from his text, he stood like a lecturer, Jones says. But from, the, from that moment that he set the text aside, he took the stance of a Baptist preacher. Jones turned to the person standing next to him and said, those people don't know it, but they're about to go to church. <laughs> a smattering of applause filled the, the pause, filled in a pause more pregnant than most. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. Oh shit, Walker said. He's using the dream. <laughs> For all King's careful preparation, the part of the speech that went on to enter the history books was added extemporaneously while he was standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Speaking in full flight to the crowd, I know that on the eve of his speech, it was not in his mind to revisit the dream, Joan insists. Two things we know for sure are that it was not in the prepared text, and it wasn't invented on the spot. King had been using the refrain for well over a year. Talking some months later of his decision to include the passage, King said, I started out reading the speech, and I read it down to a point. The audience response was wonderful that day, and all of a sudden this thing came to me that I'd used many times before. I have a dream, and I just felt that I wanted to use it here. I used it, and at that point I just turned aside from the manuscript altogether. I didn't come back to it. Though King was extremely well-known before the, he stepped up to the lectern, Jones wrote, he had stepped down on the other side of history. Story number two. Paul's dream. Someone read this uh, passage from us to us from Acts 16, 6 through 10 in the message version. Oh, they're hard words. Phrygia, Galatia, Asia, Mycia, Bithynia. Go for it, someone that's going to betray those words. <laughs> they went to Phrygia and then on through the region of Galatia. Their plan was to turn west into Asia province, but the Holy Spirit blocked that route. So they went to Magia and tried to go north into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go there either. Proceeding on through Magia, they went down to the seaport Troas. That night, Paul had a dream. A Macedonian stood on the far shore and called across the sea, Come over to Macedonia and help us. The dream gave Paul his map. We went to work at once, getting things ready to cross over to Macedonia. 
all the pieces had come together. We knew now for sure that God had called us to preach the good news to the Europeans. Luke is the author of Acts, and there are several parts in the book where the narrative is in the first person, we. It stands the reason that Luke was with, was there with Paul, at least in Troas. But I've imagined him on the road to Troas with Paul, reacting to this dream and, and these prohibitions by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus. That's kind of weird stuff. So I, I, I'm, I'm telling a story about that. And I wrote this. This map might help you understand because they're taking some twists and turns. Paul stopped abruptly in the middle of the road. I was walking with Silas a few paces ahead and didn't realize it until Timothy called to us. Wait, he's doing it again. We were headed north on the road to Bithynia. The hills around us were just breathing with spring, and the cypress trees on the ridge we climbed were swaying a stiff but pleasant breeze. It seemed to me a beautiful day to be walking through the countryside with such a purpose as ours. I traveled a lot more than many men I knew, but never with this pulsing sense of importance. Each step we took seemed like a dream. The days were long and some of the hills quite steep, but my body flexed and stretched with joy to carry me and the hope I had to those who had never heard of Jesus. It felt good to be on the road with Paul, Silas, and now Timothy, who had just joined us in Derby. Timothy's call to us woke me from my pleasant body meditation, and we turned around. Walking some hundred paces back to where Paul was standing with his eyes closed, as if carefully listening, straining to hear some delicate melody or whisper in the cypress that meant something more than just the turn of the season. We stood there in a small circle around him for a moment until Silas asked, What is it, Paul? It's not right, he muttered. This isn't the way. I stifled the urge to say, of course it is. There are, there's only one road to Bithynia. I had learned from the last time he stopped in the road when he tried to take the last turn into the province of Asia. He wasn't listening to just any wind. Come on, we're going back. We have to head east still, Paul said as he suddenly about-faced and trotted back down the hill. I guess we're headed to Troas then? Silas yelled his honest question after him. Maybe, Paul yelled, without turning around, though I could tell by the way he said it that he was smiling. We hurried after him. Timothy hoisted the pack and brought up the rear. The spirit of Jesus was leading us somewhere, but I had no idea where. It was good to not know for a little while. I had spent so much of my life discovering, deducing, and deciding that this life of surprises with Jesus was exhilarating. Having no idea was a new experience for me, and it felt good like my muscles on the road. I was using parts of me I didn't know existed until then. Seems right to me, Silas said, clapping me on the back. Eastward it is. <clears throat> a couple of weeks later, we were in Troas, where I had some decent where I had some decent connections to offer the party and the mission. I found us lodging, and we set up for a few days in the atrium of the Neandria Gate. 
We had only just begun the work of spreading the good news in that rich port city before it was time to leave again. Paul came to us on the fourth morning in Troas, advising us to pack our bags. We have to go to Macedonia, he said. This time I did not stifle my objection. But Paul, I've already paid our rent for the week. We still have three more days. We'll have to take the loss. I had a dream last night. Then he told us of the Macedonian man begging him to come across the sea to help them. It was further than I had expected to go, but something about the way Paul told the story of his dream compelled me to go along with them. It was so plain, matter of fact. The dream was not a fanciful, fleeting thought of unconsciousness. It was a message, and Paul did not doubt it. So neither did we. I actually managed to get a refund on the room and put the money towards our fare on a trade vessel slated to sail for Neapolis in Macedonia the very next morning. Timothy and Silas had never sailed before, and I tried to settle their apprehension. Odd that none of us was afraid of following this almost wild man's dreams and feelings on the road, but we were afraid of the sea. It seemed we were growing accustomed to Paul, I guess. It was a scramble to get everything ready that day, but we were on a ship just like that in less than 24 hours after Paul told us about his dream. After the bustle of the harbor, we turned north across the wide water. I went to the stern of the boat and breathed the salty breeze, steadying myself as the boat bounded over the dancing sea. I began to dream of who we would meet in Macedonia and wondered if I too would hear from God as Paul had. Nothing seemed impossible. Story number three. Rachel Sensenick's dream. As told to me by her, but I've put it in the first person, and I ran it by her. So this is my creative telling of Rachel's experience that she told to me. But when I say I, it's Rachel. Okay? Listen, I look just like her. There she is. I don't know if I was awake or asleep, but it was dark and I was lying in bed praying because I was overwhelmed by the task I had been given to do. Well, we had been given to do it together as a church, but as the pastor, I was feeling the weight in my body. My body seemed to be in sync with the worry that kept me awake, suspended between sleep and prayer. I had recently discovered that my body actually wasn't producing enough red blood cells. Those little freight cars of fuel, oxygen, sugar, and other sources of vitality. And in this way, once more, my body was in sync with the strain I was feeling to move the heavy load. We had just bought 2212 South Broad Street, the recently vacated funeral home in Philadelphia. We were set to transform this place of death into a place of new life. But the poundage of this project did not end there. We still had a lease at 1125 South Broad Street that we were trying to figure out what to do with. Opinions varied about what was best. Break the lease and see what our unpredictable and historically borderline mentally ill landlords would do. Or hold on to the lease for a new idea we had to rent it out as what is now Circle Spaces' main venue. And I was conducting the dialogue. 
But wait, there's more. This place of death we were transforming at 2212 South Broad Street was deader than we knew. The property was the center of a big family dispute. Only part of the family wanted to sell the building, and they were doing the sale with us kind of like a hostile takeover. And that family was a notorious South Philly mob family. <laughs> the woman who signed our, our agreement of sale at one point was slated to be on BH1's Mob Wives of Philadelphia, which never aired. What had I gotten myself into? And when we took possession of the property, some disgruntled family member expressed their hostility towards us by drawing a pentagram on the front wall of the building with other presumably demonic symbols. All of the rest of it was South Philly quirkiness that took a lot of time and energy, but this last piece scared me. We prayed throughout the whole building, reclaiming it in Jesus' name. But all of this together still had me shaken and wondering if I could do this. There in bed that night, I was asking myself, do I have what it takes to lead in this mess? Can I trust you to be delivered from this real darkness? I was tired in body and soul, but not sleeping well. So I prayed in that early morning darkness, and I had an experience that dramatically changed my perspective. Again, who knows if this was a dream or a vision, but it was vivid. I think I slept, but maybe it was a trance like Peter on the roof in Joppa in Acts 10. I don't know. I was lying in my same dark and sleepless bed, if it weren't for Jeff sleeping beside me, and I was feeling the heaviness of all this and my own powerlessness in it. I didn't think I had the strength to do it all. Then, Jesus was above me, arms outstretched, kind of hovering. And I could feel his blood entering my body through my arms. From his bleeding hands, I was transfused with his life. His red blood cells, his oxygen, his sugars, his spirit, his vitality, his love flowed into me through my arms. It was not medical. There were no tubes or needles, nor was it graphic like a rain of blood. It was just a transmission of energy, desperately needed fuel for my body and heart. And I, I awoke with joy and readiness to do the work I had been given to do as best I could with the partners I had been given. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.